Good morning. Welcome to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Claudia Shambaugh on Ask a Leader. This morning, we're going to expand our minds around two very separate arenas. My first guest is Roxanne Varzi, an anthropologist on UC Irvine's faculty who's carefully examined martyrdom in Iran from the eight-year war waged by Iraq against Iran in the 1980s. Professor Varzi will be part of an expert panel on Thursday evening. Uh, October 13th, presented by the Center for Living Peace Forum. She joins other luminaries who will share their experiences and insights about the making of the film, Women, War, and Peace. My second guest is Professor A.J. Shaka on the chemistry faculty at UC Irvine, who will appear at another forum open to the public. That's with Physical Sciences Breakfast Talk about zero carbon power on October 18th. In the morning. On this show, Professor Shaka will talk about his long term zero carbon um, term, long term zero carbon in the energy and alternative known as liquid fluorine thorium reactors. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. It is a treat to have Dr. Rose, Roxanne, excuse me, Roxanne Varzi, a, a UCI Irvine Anthropology, Film and Media Studies professor, author, and filmmaker. In advance of her appearance at the Women, War, and Peace Forum, which, among other things, will reframe our understanding of modern warf- warfare, Professor Varzi will talk with us today about martyrdom in the eight-year Iran-Iraq War. Roxanne Varzi was born in Iran to an American mother and Iranian father and migrated with her family to the U.S. shortly after the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Dr. Varzi's first of many trips, excursions, study missions to Iran was in 1991. Her first film, Plastic Flowers Never Die, an experimental documentary about mourning in Iran-Iraq war, was completed in 2009. She's also a writer of popular essays and fiction, having recently completed a sound project. She was one of 41 art installations at Soundwalk Today, an annual event presented in downtown Long Beach. That was October 1st. We missed it, folks. Today, we focus on Roxanne Varzi's film, Plastic Flowers Never Die. Welcome to the show, Professor Varzi. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy that you're here with us today. Let's start with your film. You spent a year in Iran without a film permit, speaking to all of those in your film. How did that work? How did you manage? Well, I was actually there doing um, anthropological field work on a Fulbright grant, and I hadn't intended to go to make a documentary. So I had my camera with me most of the time, and I asked permission of individuals, and I basically filmed without a tripod. I never set down a tripod. I never set anything up ahead of time. It was sort of um, very, very case style. 
kind of on the ground. <laughs> so did you, I mean, so you were, you started the project, but did you realize at some point, oh, maybe there's some paperwork that might have been necessary for this as you were uh, pursuing that? Not in terms of the government. I mean, a lot of people sort of make films in that way, and I hadn't really intended on making a film, so there was nothing to go and um, get permission for it specifically. I was kind of doing what any tourist would be doing, <laughs> um, but maybe a little bit beyond that. And I had, you know, permission through the Fulbright to do that kind of research. So it and was I've... sort of just an extension of collecting data originally, and then it became a film 10 years later. And Ms. Uh, Professor Varzi, by way of your mentioning the Fulbright, it's really uncanny. Your mother met your father while she was working on a Fulbright uh, <laughs> in, in the, what would that be, in the, uh, like in the late Jeez. 60s, early 70s? Mm-hmm. And yeah, then you, you were the first... Iranian uh, American, the first Iranian Iran, person of Iranian descent to, to take a Fulbright to Iran in the year 2000. That's a sort of a lovely kind of a, I don't know, <laughs> a, a, a legacy, a symmetry, what have you. Yeah, it's interesting. And so when you went back, I mean, a lot of people that you're talking with, they had a lot to say about the fact, and I guess there's an ambivalence about the... Um, the ones who stuck it out with the revolution and the war for people coming back. And that's woven quite um, integrally into the film. And we can that can come and go as we're talking about this. Well, mm-hmm. um, to the uninitiated film, um, this it's to the uninitiated, that is, viewer, this film's working on a great many levels. What, Professor Varzi, is the primary message about martyrdom that you are conveying in your film? Wow, primary message. There are a lot of different messages. I think the main thing for me was that it was incredibly difficult, and it continues to be very difficult for people to mourn the war, to really um, engage in any kind of feelings about the war that are outside of the government paradigm. There's a very strong um, sort of machinery at play that wants citizens to feel a certain way about the war, and that is that martyrdom is something to be congratulated, that martyrdom is moving on to a different life, that martyrdom is is a very happy thing and not something that we mourn about, whereas people who don't necessarily work in, in that paradigm or agree with that can't really publicly um, mourn the war in certain kinds of ways without it being a, a political kind of mourning. So. The film is really, in some ways, a vehicle for mourning. It's a way of um, allowing people to engage um, in that, I don't know if I'd call it a legacy, but that historic moment, that um, those remainders, without having to do it within the paradigm of martyrdom that the state espouses. So to be able to go in and just mourn the loss of life, to be able to go in and mourn um, what's happened you know, to the country, in 10 years, to be able to go in and, and talk about what happened even with mysticism and religion, to be able to sort of more in ways in which that's been taken away. And there are, there are many voices. You've chosen male voices to speak. You've shown women's images to, to show, um, show the, uh, to present a visual aspect of that. But I'd like to know, um, what was with the selection of the male voices, which are extremely sophisticated, and they're, they're, and we'll, t- we'll talk about them, but, but first in the general about your selection of the men, the boys. I think um, it was, it's it sort of, a lot of material, whenever I'm working with 
any kind of material, whether you want to call it data or artistic material, it sort of presents itself in certain ways. And I didn't go out of my way to make a film about men, but the war is a very male space, and it is very much about men. And to talk about sort of the mechanics of martyrdom or to talk about the experience of martyrdom, then you speak with men because they were the ones who were experiencing that. To speak of um, mourning and some of the things that come after, and that's, you know, to talk about cleaning up the remnants of war and to talk about the burden of war in different ways, that's actually when you shift to women. And I have an article on um, on the women's role in, you know, post-Iran-Iraq war. Um, it's in Feminist Review, and it's about a beautiful film that a filmmaker, Balani Etamad, made called Kilanet, about the legacy of women Is that in Farsi, uh, Professor Varzi, or is that, can we watch that one? Yeah, you can watch it. It's subtitled, it's G-I-L-A-N-E-H, and it's the name of a woman, Kilane. Um And it was out in a fa- film festival about maybe six years ago here in the U.S., so I'm not sure if it has distribution, but um, I know that there are subtitled copies of it. And oh. it's a beautiful film, and it really deals with that. I think um, I just happened to sort of be on the ground looking at the mechanics of martyrdom and looking at ways in which the state really motivated men to go to war and how they use this paradigm within Shiism to get people to do that. So that really meant talking to men and talking to them about their experiences. Yes. In particular. Oh, my goodness. And the, the, the voices also, besides being on the, the, in the, on the different levels of the men and the women attesting to uh, the per, the meaning of this uh, uh, essential it's an it's essentialism in uh, the um, Iranian mobilization solidifying of power in I mean and that's what I want to get back to is uh, that that role that martyrdom played uh, it would would it have well I don't want to box you in a corner here it would be very delicate but that that <laughs> it with this was an essential way for for the regime to solidify power. And it's and it's all. I mean, it's what a year and a half old before uh, Iraq attacks the country, and so there's there's a lot on the line. And that was that was a way to to show a, yeah to rile up the masses and to get people to sort of look outside of the borders at something else that was happening, so that everything that was happening domestically could could sort of happen without too much um, scrutiny. <laughs> And a lot of a lot of political scientists have talked about that. So um, it, it did consolidate power in the beginning. I think that any time, and it's not just Iran. A lot of nation states do this. They um, tend to look at the outside and try to put people's attention on the outside. And especially an outside enemy is always very useful if you're trying to shift things inside that you don't want people to necessarily um, protest. You want to put people's energies in a different direction. And. Yeah. And you talk about how this really, it's, there is no, we don't experience this in our American culture, but this centuries, millennia old uh, poetic tradition in Iranian culture and how that is brought into the, the, the martyrdom themes where uh, inscriptions that you see, you, mm-hmm. you show us uh, sweeps, of, and conversations with people that are are um, 
That's mural the mural painter. He's touching up the mural painting. There, uh, there. And we'll talk about him, and we can talk where all these other inscriptions show up. What's, what is the uh, the origin of the inscription that he's using in the slogan, and the meaning of using that inscription? Well, he's using actually some inscriptions from a speech from Khomeini. So in that in that particular instance, the Friday prayers were really important. It's a very oral culture in in many ways, and um, poetry is incredibly important. And that's one thing, even in my own field work, when I was looking at people from religious minorities and people who um, considered themselves secular, one thing that everyone agreed upon and everybody loved were some of the, you know, traditional Iranian poets that would be considered mystical Islamic poets, like Rumi, for example. Um, Everybody felt an affinity, no matter what their religion, you know, Zoroastrian, a Christian Iranian, would feel an affinity for Rumi. Um, and it's interesting because at the beginning of the revolution, Khomeini actually really picked up on that tradition, and that was a very powerful thing to do, and it works very well. And he actually penned Sufi poetry himself under the pseudonym Al-Hindi. And a lot of his speeches, he took up, you know, theorists and ideas from very incredible post-colonial thinkers, and he was very good at, at taking theory and poetry and bringing it all together. And it and it's something that's always sort of spoken to um, Iranians, and it's something that you can do on many levels, and you can speak to people on, on different levels, um, you know, especially if it's quite obscure. Well, and we can witness that, Professor Varzi, here in, with uh, Iranian uh, performances where it's almost a callback response. And I've talked about that when I had some programs on Noru's uh, last spring, where uh, mm-hmm. Iranians are completely fluent with the references to the poetry and sing back, call back, sway mm-hmm. to the, um, the the rhythms and the, uh, the the phrases that that come out of poetry. And Hussein Umumi with his performances here mm-hmm. and with others throughout uh, Southern California. That so it's 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 it elicits an immediate response, and I guess that's what um, the Ayatollah was. Uh, well aware of, um, but it was a, it's very secular poetry, though, isn't it? Well, I mean, at the base, it's actually very mystical and very religious and very, I mean, I wouldn't say maybe religious, I would say spiritual, and it's great that you mentioned Hossein Umumi because he also was very generous and lent me some music for my film, and so yes. I actually have some of his nay playing in the film, and... Um, you know, the ney is actually a very spiritual instrument, and um, it comes right out of the poetry of Rumi and uh, very Sufi, which is, it's Muslim. Sufism is um, part of the Islamic religion. It's become, you know, secularized through New Age, and, you know, that's a whole another history that we could get into when we have more time. But um, it's something, yes, that speaks to everyone and everyone can respond to. So there's been a lot of back and forth. It's never been fully um, appropriated by the government, nor has it ever been fully appropriated by any, you know, um, particular contingent. Everyone sort of had a stake in it. Everyone feels that they own it and they belong to it, and that's sort of the beauty of it. It's, it's and, remained above, you know, at that level all along. And it very much comes across in the film where it's 
I wouldn't say that the um, interviewees are in a trance, but it's a sort of a second nature mm-hmm. kind of uh, refrain that they're invoking when they're, like in the case of the, the man who's touching up the mural, the slogan on, uh, on the wall in, the, in, the, in downtown Tehran, as well as with the other gentleman that you speak at some length with, uh, who is putting a, a refreshing at a shrine, a photograph mm-hmm. of his relative, um, and, 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 so, and he's showing you what, what it is that uh, is being said, and that also is the poetry. That's right, right. Yeah, and both of actually both of those people in the film come more from the perspective of following the government. And so when they are on film, they're automatically going to go to their slogans, and that's that's almost an automatic. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are almost an automatic pipe. And then a treat for all of the viewers is your poetry. And I understand, I mean, with the rich poetic tradition in in Iranian culture, even though most of your years you were raised here, but in your family Mm -hmm. that cultural tradition was pervade, that uh, you give us your poetry that you'd written from, you were saying from your, you were a schoolgirl all the way into your (laughs) current writings. And and, and it's a lot to navigate. We're trying to, uh, it's it's a very dense way of capturing what you're observing in Iran, in Tehran and around. And uh, we we have to pay very special attention, folks, when we're watching Plastic Flowers Never Die. I mean, that title is so deceptively simple and accessible. (laughs) mouthful. <laughs> well, the, the poetry really is, and it's we're trying to uh, listen, and we're trying to figure out, all right, whose poetry is it that we're hearing now? What's the intention of the poetry? And then I, I also, I have to um, uh, pay reference to the um, the very creative touches in this film. I'm, uh, Professor Varzi's able, this is her own production. She, she, she's in complete control of all aspects of this creative endeavor. And she's giving us some newsreels of the actual battle. Uh, and um, I cannot pronounce the name particularly, Talia. Yeah. And in, um, then weaving back from that, that uh, clip, those film clips, to a, a uh, diorama of that battle in a particular um, war museum, yeah, museum. and yeah, it's amazing what made you think of that. I mean, it's it's uh, it's 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 incredible. <laughs> it gives us an idea of you're you're letting us know what that interviewer uh, interviewee was experiencing. That they're, they're both right. uh, taking the field trips to those battle zones, and then they come back to the museum for more context. And you're giving us context by showing us these miniature sort of right. uh, emergency well, vehicles. Kind of, I guess that as an anthropologist, I've always been a little bit obsessed with museums, and I'm really interested in museum studies. And I was reading a lot of um, a woman named Susan Stewart who talks about the miniature and the gigantic and. I love this idea of miniaturizing something so large, something so bloody. I mean, I don't love the idea, but I, I, I You're think intrigued. it's very powerful that that happens. And so I wanted to animate it in the film and, and show you the sounds and the blood and the things that you don't get in a diorama, because the diorama is so sterile and it's so removed um, from history, in, in a sense. And so it, the whole film was sort of about reclaiming um, some of the things that maybe, you know, the government took away from, from the narrative of the war after the war. And some of that was um, things like sterilizing some of the, um, the battlefronts, um, taking mystical poetry and, and using it to, 
to a certain end. So I tried to reclaim some of that in the film, to take back some of the poetry, to animate the dioramas and show what really happened. Um, and just animating the diorama was also my way of learning editing, um, yeah. teaching myself how to how to do film editing. And you taught yourself it, it, well. I'm very proud of that because that's my first little uh, film editing moment. And so um, it was a lot of fun, actually, well, you, getting you, in the sounds of the sirens and moving things around. And, you didn't need to mention that was your first effort because it was it was a seamless altogether professional <laughs> touch with uh, bringing those Thank two you. very divergent uh, presentations to uh, to make a message. And I, I we don't have lots of time left. Uh, we do want to make it clear how people can, um, if there's any room left at the panel on Thursday, we want to make a, a little reference to that. But uh, you managed to find a couple of young men. One was not finished with high school, and I don't know uh, where the background is of the other man. They both seem to have an interesting sort of a not-too-distant, not-too-close, sort of a, in, a, a interpretation of what it means to remember this war. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, how did you find those two guys? Well, the slogan painter just happened to be on the street when I was driving by, and I asked my cousin to stop the car, and he said, are you crazy? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so I, I just went and I asked him if I could interview him. And then the young man actually was part of um, the research that I was doing on youth culture in Iran, and I was there to do participant observation at a film shoot he was doing. He was a film student because I was doing a lot of work on Iranian cinema. And as we were waiting for them to set up a shot, I, um, you know, just asked him about it. He was golden. He that, excuse me? He was golden. I mean, <laughs> I, did you know that he was going to gonna be such a, a rich zone to, to mine? Sorry? Did you know that he was going to be such a rich zone to mine? You know, I as an anthropologist, I just I think everyone's a rich zone to mine, and so it's just always, um, you know, it's just great to start a conversation. No, I didn't know ten years later I would um, that he would become central to to this film. And I told him what I was doing, and I said, you know, this, you know, I'm thinking about making a documentary um, on this, and and he was very excited, and he was writing war plays and things like that. So. Um, I knew he was interesting, and I really enjoyed speaking with him. Well, he was a good one to include there. And I want, I'm want i sure everybody's at the edge of their seat, and they want to know how they can ever possibly see this film. <laughs> you can check it out at the UC Irvine Main Library. It's also right. available uh, for purchase at the, it's the website's for is um, DEA.org, meaning Documentary Education Resources. Uh, Professor Varzi will be appearing this Thursday, uh, 7 o'clock is when doors open for the Women War and Peace at the Pacific Ballroom located at UC Irvine Student Center. It's a, it's free for students, faculty, and staff. Uh, for the general public, it's reason, very reasonably priced. So, there, But uh, I don't know if there's any... Uh, any tickets available? I tried to uh, go onto the the Zot portal this morning, and it, I was in a loop, and I don't know if I'm, that meant that it was already sold out. So um, I want um, we want with the close of this program to uh, hear a piece written and performed by an Iranian artist. She's now based in Los Angeles. She is Mamak Khadem. Did I do that right? Mamak Khadem. And uh, for up-and-coming performances in our area, uh, there aren't any scheduled right now, but you can see on her website, mamak-khadem.com. And uh, we'll, uh, maybe you have a, mo- a word to say about her as we're, we get, we'll just cue her up right now. 
She's wonderful. She um, lent me some music for the film, and she used to be part of a band called Axiom of Choice, who were just incredible, and really lent a landscape to the film of um, the diaspora voice and the longing of going back and, and some of what it's like to mourn outside of the country as well. Well, I'm so glad that you uh, directed us to this uh, beautiful piece. I want, as we closed, to thank you, Professor Varzi, for talking with us about your creative piece on Martyrdom in Iran, and I can't wait until your next film, your next performance <laughs> art piece. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's thank you. All the best, and uh, we'll, we're going to be watching what you're doing. We're here. We're going to uh, close out with Mamak, Mamak Hadem. که My guest is Dr. A.J. Shaka, University of California Professor of Chemistry with interests in physical and biophysical chemistry, nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, chemistry of aging, nuclear power, and radiochemistry. His credentials extend from his Rhodes Scholarship to his recent Emmy Award for Best Instructional Series with Distant Learning in Chemistry. He speaks to us in advance of his Physical Sciences Breakfast Talk on October 18th, for which an RSVP is due. That's tomorrow. That's today when this is played on October 11th. And we'll give you more particulars about that coffee uh, for next Tuesday uh, at the end of the interview. Dr. Shaka, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Claudia. It's very great to have you on here today. Uh, uh, Professor Shaka is going to bring out what has been, they say, has been hiding out in the open uh, since the 1960s in plain sight, the, the alternative nuclear power known as liquid fluoride thorium reactors. Professor Shaka, would you please give us, the lay public, an explanation of what liquid fluoride thorium reactors are? Well, a liquid fluoride thorium reactor is much like a conventional reactor in that it uses nuclear fission to produce heat. The heat can be used to produce electricity, but it's far different than the current fleet of nuclear reactors we have because instead of having a solid fuel and water and an enormous pressure vessel and giant steam turbines and all the rest of it, it actually uses a molten salt. So if you can imagine heating up just regular table salt. That's all it takes. So hot that it melts. It's just regular table salt. You don't have to do anything to it. No, we use a different kind of salt. Instead of sodium chloride, we use lithium chloride and beryllium chloride, uh, excuse me, sodium fluoride and beryllium fluoride. But it's basically a very, very hot salt. And salt, you have to get it very hot before it even melts. And you have to get it extremely hot before it'll boil. And so this very hot liquid is not under pressure. And that's far different than water, where we have a lot of pressure, 
an enormous vessel, the, the problem of uh, an explosion or something like that occurring. So we have none of those problems with this design. And this, this particular form of salt, that is everywhere available. There's no shortage. There's no um, sort of a regional kind of a, a market, a corner on that market. You can obtain it anywhere. No, uh, there's no problem at all. Lithium fluoride, uh, there's just tons and tons of it. Beryllium's quite common. And thorium itself, which is going to be used for the fuel and burned up in this liquid salt, is found everywhere in the United States uh, and across the world. We have enough thorium just in Idaho already mined and up above the ground to power us for almost a thousand years. We do. Yes. And let's say um, in, on other continents, they have their ready supply as well? Yes, the thorium's distributed around the world. It's very common. It's about as abundant as tin. And it's in Australia, it's in India, it's in the United States. It's present everywhere. And it's easily extracted? It's almost already been extracted because it's considered a nuisance. When they mine for rare earth elements, which they use for the iPhone and the iPad and those kinds of things, they bring up thorium in addition. And because thorium is very mildly radioactive, it's kind of a regulatory burden for them to treat it appropriately. And so thorium they consider to be a nuisance, but not useful for any kind of electronic device. So perfect to, to burn up. So liquid fluoride thorium reactors are dealing with the waste stream that's already in existence. Uh, in a way, we have all these tailings, mining tailings that are up, and they're loaded with thorium, and we can just scoop it up, purify it, and put it into this new generation, the so-called Generation 4 of nuclear reactors, which are going to be far smaller, far more efficient, and far safer than anything we have today. And moving this slightly radioactive material around is not an issue for for uh, to locate it to where there are would be nuclear reaction plants no it's not an issue at all because thorium itself cannot be made into nuclear weapons so there's no worry if it goes missing and in fact it was considered so harmless that it was used in the old lanterns that people took camping where you turned on a gas flame and you got that brilliant white light. In fact, the silk mantles had thorium oxide in them. That was what's making that white uh, bright light, and nobody ever had any problems with those. But it's not used anymore? It's no longer? Probably it's not used anymore because people have LED lights and stuff powered by batteries okay. now instead of the gas. Less, less combustible material to take camping. Yes. Okay, fine. Well, um, I'm, you know, when I look up around um, some of the sort of recent discussions, there was an article uh, you kindly made available to me written by Hob Har Robert Hargraves and Ralph Moir. Um, they were talking about liquid fluoride treatment reactor is in many ways a straightforward extension of contemporary nuclear chemical engineering. How is it that this, that was, um, I guess he tinkered with Enrico Fermi of the Los Alamos National Laboratory. He was developing this in the 1940s uh, in the lead-up to uh, developing the atomic bomb. Why, why did he move off that course? I think the main reason was that with the thorium-based fuel cycle, you can't really make atomic weapons. And the United States at that time was very interested in producing plutonium and other things that they could use for weapons. And we were very good at it. We produced a ton of stuff and made a ton of weapons, 
And now we've got the weapons sitting around, and we've got all the material sitting around, and we have the waste stream from all those processes up in Washington sitting around. And the total emphasis was different. We were trying to make more atomic bombs than the Soviet Union. And thorium was not a good way to do that. We had the technology to work with uranium. We had the know-how. It worked, and that was really the emphasis. The emphasis to think about using atoms for peace was, was far later, and it never really drove the research. We'll talk about the symmetry of an, uh, the escalation of uh, weapon development to uh, alternative energy uh, weaponry in just a minute. I'd, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Professor A.J. Shaka. He's on the chemistry faculty here at UC Irvine, talking about meeting our energy needs with the nuclear process known as liquid fluoride thorium reactors. Uh, listening here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. Well, if the public understood that a substantial savings uh, could be had on our light bills, we'd all be out there lobbying for this conversion to liquid fluoride thorium reaction, wouldn't we? I think you probably would, and I think probably if you breathe deeply, you would even be more in favor of it because there's no exhaust, there's no smoke, there's no anything that's going to affect you. Thorium is not soluble in water, so it can't really affect the groundwater either. And because these reactors are so small and they aren't under pressure, they can't explode or they can't... Uh, devastate something. So they're, they're really quite passively safe. When you were talking about the, the size of the facility, let's take, uh, if uh, we could use a, as a frame of reference, the San Onofre plant. So what portion of that uh, compound would a liquid fluoride thorium reactor fit on? Uh, you could make it very, very small. At the actual nuclear core, even at a plant like San Onofre, is not really that huge. What gets huge is when you need to have tons and tons and tons of steel to contain water that's superheated because it water boils at 100 Celsius, but if you use that to make power, you can't make much power. You need to have steam and you need to have it hot. So they have to pressurize the water to 1,000 PSI and heat it up very hot. And the problem then is that it's already under pressure. So if you lose your cooling pumps, now you have something that's already very, very under pressure. Very volatile. And it could actually uh, get out of control. And uh, so you have a very massive pressure vessel to make sure that doesn't happen. And then you have an enormous steam turbine. It's absolutely huge. And when you see how easily it spins when the nuclear reaction runs, you're just really impressed with the muscle behind that. Well, isn't some of the site at San Onofre used too for containing uh, spent fuel rods too? So I mean, that's and that that would not be a matter of the liquid fluoride thorium reaction. Yes, in fact, when when they stop using the nuclear fuel rods in solid fuel, it's not because they've run out of material. It's because they're building up too many waste products, and also because they're sealed they could be building up pressure and perhaps cracking and there's a worry that there would be a crack and and material would get out into the water which would be very bad but with this design with the molten salt design you're much better off because you can actually use a gas turbine the same kind of turbine that they use with a natural gas power plant 
and you can just heat up a gas to extremely high temperature with this and then drive a gas turbine and you don't even have to have any water at all and the turbines are much much smaller than uh, the steam turbines that they use now. And uh, as you've uh, shown me in some of the literature then there is not a matter of in, in your, the uranium react, nuclear reaction you're not able to use the whole uh, element the, or your, the, the, the fuel rod is not completely spent it's just that that because of the overheating that it has to shut down but with the liquid fluoride thorium reaction you've got uh, the whole rod to completely spend yes help me out that was such a terrible lay expression but maybe if that's a, a modicum of truth please let me know well there are two isotopes of uranium there's a major isotope uranium 238 which is 99.3 percent abundant and then there's a very minor isotope uranium 235 only uranium-235 will undergo a fission chain reaction and produce power. The 238 itself doesn't really produce any power, but it does, unfortunately, absorb neutrons produced by the other reaction. Over time, the uranium-238 becomes plutonium. That can also undergo a, a nuclear reaction, but that can be separated and turned into a weapon. That's the breeder reaction. That's the breeder reaction using plutonium. And because uranium-235 itself is a worry for nuclear weapons, we don't want pure uranium-235 anywhere because that could be stolen and used to make a bomb. In a so, real crude way, yeah, easily. Well, it would, it would work. Uh, the bomb that they used in Japan that was uranium, they didn't test. The one they tested in New Mexico was the plutonium bomb because they weren't sure that would work. Oh, my goodness. Oh my goodness, I appreciate the clarity there. Well, um, and I want to, we were talking about structural uh, advantages and um, safety advantages. There's an economic advantage too, as I'm, I'm easily convinced here, uh, call me call me easily convinced folks, that, um, that the, uh, as Hargraves and Moir pointed out um, in their article uh, published last year, that the U.S. government's collected $25 billion in fees from nuclear power producers over the past 30 years, and those fees surely were passed on to all the ratepayers. So these, this, this sort of fee structure would change with a uh, a safer, more contained um, kind of a, a a nuclear reaction to provide energy. Well, I think a lot would change since the time of President Carter. The U.S. has decided that they are not going to recycle any of this fuel that could be recycled and uh, reused by putting it into new additional fuel rods. And the reason why is because at the time we were negotiating a treaty with the Russians and it was thought that that would probably uh, r reduce the chances that the treaty would be passed because it would be very hard to verify that you weren't diverting plutonium secretly from these spent fuel rods and somehow fabricating new bombs that you weren't really accounting for. And so for that reason, President Carter said, right, we're not going to recycle any spent nuclear fuel. And that was an instant headache for the utility producers. They're in the business of producing power. They are not in the business of managing radioactive waste, which the government promised to do for them. The government really fell down on that, and as a result, we have lots of uh, hot fuel rods sitting in ponds, and we have to pay guards to guard them because we don't want them to go missing, and we have a security headache, 
And then we also have a, an additional safety hazard nearby a nuclear plant or a utility where a lot of people work. And that in itself is, is very bad policy. We want to get that material away from the plant and treat it safely and then dispose of the stuff that needs to be disposed of. But there is no place. Yucca Mountain was signed off as not going to be a, a facility by President Obama in the beginning, I think, of this year. So there's every all the spent rods are staying put where they're, they were generated. For the time being, they are, but I don't think they're going to stay put there forever. The Blue Ribbon Commission, uh, headed by Per Peterson of UC Berkeley, is having a look again at, at how to handle the, the spent fuel. And I think that they're going to come up with some recommendations. People are very afraid of spent fuel, but in fact, uh, you'd be very hard-pressed to find any situation in which anybody has ever been hurt by spent fuel. That's not keeping you up at night, then? No. What keeps me up at night is weapons. Yes. We've got thousands and thousands of weapons. If you aren't worried about them, you're crazy to be worried about a power plant. Okay. Wow. This is, for those of you who just joined us, Professor A.J. Shaka, Professor of Chemistry at UC Irvine, talking about meeting our energy needs. Uh, as he talks about the uh, nuclear reaction um, the, the facility as an alternative to the uranium-based one, the alternative being the liquid fluoride thorium reactors. Well, um, it's not, as we t consider the um, economic consequences here, um, uh, you've mentioned that there's the, the Indian, the country of India has uh, developed a form of liquid fluoride thorium reaction, but it's not the same as the one you're working on here at UCI. What's, their, what's the difference with what they've developed? Well, in fact, the, the Indian uh, researchers have used thorium in the fuel cycle, but unfortunately they're still using solid uh, fuel, so they still have all the headaches that you have with the uranium fuel cycle. The beauty of the liquid uh, material is that the products that you don't want tend to come out and so you don't have to worry about anything expanding and cracking and so forth. And the molten salt is ideal because it can't be damaged by radiation. And that's a major advantage. Any solid material can be damaged by radiation. But a molten salt is full of ions and radiation is considered to be ionizing radiation because it can form ions. But the molten salt is already a load of ions, so it can't be damaged, and so you can run it forever. Forever. Essentially 30, 40 years without doing anything. So you're saying the same salt that was brought to the facility, it was good for a thousand years? All you do is you feed in new thorium into the reactor and burn it up. So once the reactor is going, it's just like a campfire. You okay. don't have to have any matches again or anything else. You just feed in a new log, and it burns. Just is really it's that easy. Yeah. Well, you uh, also mentioned that the Chinese are developing now the molten form of the liquid fluoride thorium reaction, and they're they're well along their way, are they? No, they they made a major announcement at the beginning of this year, but uh -huh. they have a lot of money to put behind it. They have all the publicly available information on the molten salt reactor that they ran at Oak Ridge National Lab in 1965. To they ran? They, the Chinese ran that? No. Oh, the, we uh, did. We did. Okay. We did. Uh, and 
all those documents are available online. They're all public. And the Chinese scientists read those documents, and they said this sounds like a good idea, and they're pursuing it. There's obviously some development to be done, but there was a working prototype in 1965, and it worked. It produced 8 megawatts of heat. They ran it Monday to Friday, and at Friday they turned it off, and then they came back on Monday morning and fired it back up again, and they did lots of experiments with it to see what it was producing, how much radioactivity, how they would run this thing. And then in 1969, they closed it down, and partly that was politics because it was not going to be useful for making any kind of weapon. And that's exactly the reason why we want this technology now. Wow. So the Chinese saw those documents and have then put their capital behind developing that. And uh, it's... It's a, it concerns all of us, I guess, if the Chinese were to develop that and establish a, a substantial market share, that we might be, we might lose out the way we, in that in that uh, energy alternative, the way we seem to be losing out in the the solar panel production at this point. It could be something similar. It would be terrible to be buying back your own technology because these reactors are compact. They can be put on a rail car and they can be shipped everywhere. And the idea is rather than having 104 different kinds of reactors the way we have in this country, you'd have one kind the same way you have one kind of car, one model of car produced. And you'd mass produce them and you ship them out and then when you start them up you need some fissile material you do that under security once you start the reactor you never have to transport fissile material you're just transporting thorium and that's already lying all over the ground everywhere on earth if people could make weapons out of that i assure you they would have done so well how far let's say let's say um now there's there's a lot of meetings now internationally about developing this energy alternative. If I, I don't know if alternative is the right word to use, but I, it's alternative because it's not something that's been um, commercial yet. But um, how far, if given the kind of discussions that you're seeing amongst uh, the all the technical minds uh, in our country, how far are we with um, a little more leadership sort? Um, exerting uh, its will over the existing stakeholders in, uh, in coal and uh, other uh, nuclear energy? I think uh, thorium is going to be a mildly disruptive technology depending on uh, where you're making money. If you're mining uranium, then you probably don't want to see people using thorium fuel instead because you're selling them uranium. So in Australia, they have hardly any nuclear industry at all, but they mine a lot of uranium as yellow cake, and they sell it to India and China and other places like that. And there's a great deal of coal still being mined in, in Australia, I think, upward up in the northern section. Unbelievable amounts of coal. So that may be more of a deterrent in the political will to convert to the liquid fluoride thorium reactor. Maybe until we see, you know, summers that are like the one they had in Dallas this summer, where it's 110 basically every day for 90 days, and there's no let-up. And we're going to see more of that if, if climate change continues and the planet continues to warm. It's going to get unbearably hot, and at that 
At that time, I think people will start to consider ways to to mitigate CO2. So, Professor Shaka, um, what then? I was asking earlier about the time frame, so the listeners could appreciate how far along, how far off this prospect is. Were we to um, all of us mobilize in some kind of way to put pressure on uh, energy authorities for uh, putting in place all the kinds of oversight for construction? financing and all that how how far away i mean um because there's a there's a global sort of economic consequence to our moving on this technology as well as there's the the carbon footprint um so how far off realistically in the future would it be that we before we'd see some kind of reactor like this up and running in this country the main problem that we have is that the nuclear reactions are considered differently from other chemical reactions. There are plenty of hazardous chemicals that are used every day in laboratories. There are lasers that can blind you. There are other devices. But you're basically allowed to set them up and use them in an intelligent way after you have some safety training. If, on the other hand, you uh, want to take a load of thorium, dissolve it in a molten salt, and have it come to criticality so that it's producing a nuclear chain reaction, you aren't allowed to do that at all. In fact, you'll be led away in andirons if you try something like that because the Nuclear Regulatory uh, Commission will not approve any kind of new nuclear plant design until you have a comprehensive safety analysis, etc., etc. And since basically the entire nuclear industry came from the Navy, and they used solid fuel for the subs for the subs and they've never had any problem with it either uh, that they're everybody's familiar with that the safety procedures are established the documents are drafted uh, and so forth and so on and that's just not the case with a completely new design so we'd have to do that kind of thing at a national lab or someplace that's considered to be secure like they did at Oak Ridge National Lab originally. Or with the same kind of urgency as in Los Alamos. I mean, it, it, there is an urgency here. Yes, and Los Alamos has developed a, a procedure for purifying thorium, so I think they're thinking along the right lines. Okay. Well, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left over, but I wanted to make sure that um, we could mention that you are working on a reactor on the campus, and it's we're able to say that. That's, that's not a... Uh, a uh, a confidential uh, item that we can actually, you said we could actually visit it if we wanted to see how it works. Yes, we give tours all the time to the reactor uh, in in the chemistry department. UCI chemistry department is, is perhaps the only chemistry department in the world or one of only a few that actually has a research reactor. It's based on uranium but we can use it to irradiate thorium and other materials and we can simulate what might happen in a liquid fluoride thorium reactor. We can see what chemicals and fission products are produced, and so we can do some research. We just can't make an entire liquid fluoride thorium reactor from scratch and then have it generate tons of power without uh, regulatory approval. And so since you're the only facility like what you have already going on, that would be a, a, a huge leap to get that kind of additional authority for you to do that. I mean, is it even possible if once you've demonstrated a certain kind of, a, I don't know, a testing? I mean, you can't test until you test, so there's a catch-22 here. 
Well, it has it has been tested because Oak Ridge had it working, but you just right. have to go back to those documents and you have to say this is important. We're going to make this a priority. We're not going to investigate geothermal and tides and other things that are useless for energy production, and we're going to instead work with something that uh, will work. And we, it's all locally produced. Thorium is not an expensive item at all, and so it's very cheap to burn it up. Well, I'm, I can't imagine a, a more elegant way of dealing with the carbon footprint with the American sort of... Uh, I think lost opportunity in developing alternative energies than than getting on this bandwagon and so I I want for everybody to know if you're interested in hearing more from Professor AJ Shaka, a professor of chemistry at UC Irvine, uh, you would be able to register on October 11th. That'll be the day we're going to hear this live, uh, this uh, interview. And um, th where do they go for making the the reservation? Um. Okay, well, we'll we'll get that tomorrow, and uh, we'll for the uh, next recording, uh, the broadcast. And uh, what we'll do is uh, mention though that the physical sciences breakfast talk is uh, where it the form will be, um, and it's about zero carbon power. As I said, it will be held on October eighteenth, and the coffee begins at seven thirty that morning, and the talk that Professor. Shaka Walid goes from 8 until 8.50. Well, that's all the time that we have. I'd like to thank you, Professor A.J. Shaka, for explaining this technology of liquid fluoride thorium reaction and uh, what it means for us in providing us with safer, less expensive energy. And um, I hope you have a great turnout, and thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. Good to have you. Well, I just wanted to post everybody on that particular talk is called Deep Green, Long-Term Zero Carbon Power for the 21st Century. It starts at 7.30 a.m. That's where the coffee begins. And then with the, um, then A.J. Shaka will start talking at 8 o'clock. So um, the RSVP finally today will be at events at ps.uci.edu or you can call 949 8240218 for that form and so today's the last day folks um, October 11th and um, I'm glad that you could all join us today with these special programs I want you to stay tuned for George Rosales George had a hat we'll talk with some more interesting content next year <laughs> next week all the best <laughs>